Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we travel to Cabbage Town, an Atlanta neighborhood that was home to Appalachian workers who migrated there for textile jobs. Even though there was certainly a lot of inhabitants who never wanted to call it Cabbage Town, eventually it became a badge of honor. We also tag along with Cole, a dog with a big job in a southern West Virginia elementary school. Are you late with Cole? Can I give him a pet? Yes, give him one more pet. And just in time for the spooky season, we hear about Mountain Cove, a community of spiritualists who came to West Virginia in 1850. They thought that there were ways to contact folks who were dead, and they lasted for a few years. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We want to begin this week with a bit of listener feedback to a past show. Our What is Appalachia episode first aired in late 2021, and we re-aired it a few weeks ago. At one point in the show, I called Pittsburgh Appalachia's biggest city. Well, Ed Pickle of Northeast Alabama wrote in to take issue with that. He argues that Appalachia's biggest city is actually Atlanta, Georgia. The Atlanta metro area is nearly three times the size of Pittsburgh. It's located in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it's got a sizable population of Appalachian expats who came out of the mountains for work. Well, Ed, those are some good arguments. We know Atlanta is not included in the Appalachian Regional Commission. But we also know that a lot of Appalachians have moved to Atlanta for work. No doubt. And wherever they go, the people of Appalachia carry mountain culture with them. After the Civil War, droves of Appalachian workers migrated to a mill town in the middle of Atlanta, eventually called Cabbage Town. Famed folk singer and Appalachian activist Joyce Brookshire memorialized its history in this 1975 song. We came in 1885 to work in the new cotton mill For we had heard the pay was good There were many jobs to fill We said goodbye to our mountain homes there to return no more but we brought with us the way of life that we had known before we're a mountain clan called cabbage town in the city of atlanta ga These Appalachians came to work at the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, which opened in 1881. A century and a half later, Cabbage Town is still home to urban Appalachian culture and traditions. Jess Mador has this story. The smokestacks of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill still tower over Cabbage Town. The 19th century district is famous for its narrow streets of Victorian homes, small cottages, and shotgun houses. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1976. Carol. 83-year-old Ronald Edwards has lived in Cabbage Town his entire life. His small white house with a wide front porch sits a few blocks from the mill. I was born in 1938 on Powell Street, and I worked in the cotton mill. Edward's father and brother also worked at the mill. So did all of their neighbors. At its height, the complex employed nearly 3,000 people, turning raw cotton into bags for flour, grains, and other goods. Edwards worked in the fabric inspection department. What I do is run, uh, run the cloth through a winder, and got all the bad defects out of it, make sure all the defects was out of it, you know. The work was physically exhausting. The hours were long and the pay was low. But Edward says neighbors helped each other get by. They shared conversation, food, and music. Rocking in his creaky chair, he remembers Cabbage Town as a great place to grow up. We would play hide-and-go-seek, horseshoes, basketball on the 
we'd be playing touch football, you know, in, in summertime, and maybe a neighbor come by and say, who's winning the game? Mom would be cooking breakfast or something, and a neighbor would come by and, and visit for two hours or more and just sit and visit and talk. And people don't do that anymore. The neighborhood's small town feel thrived in part because of Cabbage Town's relative isolation. It's sandwiched along railroad tracks and the massive mill that covered several city blocks. Today, Edwards uses a cane. He has trouble getting around. He loves to sit by his living room window or out on the porch and chat with whoever walks by. Everybody in the neighborhood knows him. It's really cool. Edwards' son, Ronnie, sits near his dad in the living room. Family photos and mementos decorate every wall. The magic thing, I think, about Cabbage Town is that you're instantaneously family. Like, I have never felt it anywhere else. That spirit of community faded for a while after the mill began shutting down in the late 70s. With the jobs leaving, some mill families moved away too. The area quickly declined. Drugs, prostitution, and violence took hold. To try and keep the peace, Ronnie says some longtime residents started an informal neighborhood watch group. Sometimes it was people out walking around. One of the members is named Myra, and she liked to power walk. So we would all power walk. Just being out in the community and, and showing, hey, we're not going to hide from this. Activists opened a community center for laid-off workers. There were after-school programs. And when gentrification began in the 80s, activists battled with real estate speculators, developers, and slumlords. They lobbied to protect what made Cabbage Town's arts, culture, and industrial heritage so unique. It's a mission that continues to this day. My name is Jacob Elsis, and I am the great-great-grandson of the founder of Fulton Bag and Cotton Mills, whose name was also Jacob Elsus. His great-great-grandfather was a German-speaking Jewish immigrant and Union Army veteran who came to America at the age of 18. He started as a street peddler and ended up in the textile business. Soon, the Elsus Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill grew into one of the biggest in the South. Its industrial output helped rebuild Atlanta after the Civil War. While Cabbage Town was more ethnically diverse than some outsiders assumed, Elsa says its dominant white Appalachian culture put the name Cabbage Town on the map. It was a derogatory name given to it by people on the outside. Surely they're a bunch of people who eat nothing but cabbage, they're poor mill workers. Even though there were certainly a lot of inhabitants who never wanted to call it Cabbage Town, eventually it became a badge of honor. Elsus grew up in Atlanta and moved out of state for 20 years. He says coming back to Cabbage Town about a decade ago and seeing the impacts of gentrification ignited his passion for sharing its stories. I made it my second half of my life's objective to come back in the neighborhood and try to work towards putting together an art and history center that would tell the story of the mill town, of the people who used to be part of this mill town who had been displaced. By then, the long, vacant, deteriorating Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill complex had been preserved. Its buildings were redeveloped into apartment lofts and condos. Elsus moved in, settling on the spot where his namesake opened the mill almost 150 years before. I was always aware that my family had built this factory and subsequently a little mill town next to it. He'd inherited a treasure trove of mill-related artifacts and photos. And after he met his wife, Nina, whose background is in art history and research, they worked together on the idea. In 2018, they opened their nonprofit storefront museum. They called it Patchworks Art and History Center, named after an iconic neighborhood social and educational organization launched in 1971. That was called the Patch, and that's kind of what compelled us to call our own history center the Patchworks. When the pandemic started, Patchworks closed to the public, but the couple's historic preservation and Cabbage Town advocacy work continues. Elsa says ever-skyrocketing housing prices and years of gentrification have left their scars on the neighborhood. They're working to foster more understanding between old-timers and newcomers. We want to try to be a bridge 
between new Cabbage Town to old Cabbage Town because a lot of the people who left feeling unwelcomed here, we want them to come back and participate. I know the cultures are very different now, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, economics, but we're all into this neighborhood together and we should appreciate that and appreciate each other because of it. Every year in early November, longtime residents, newcomers, and descendants of the original Mill families gather in the neighborhood to celebrate Cabbage Town's Appalachian heritage with the Chomp and Stomp Arts, Food, and Traditional and Bluegrass Music Festival. The festival's been running for almost 20 years now as a benefit for Cabbage Town's public spaces and parks. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jess Mador. For more about the Chomp and Stomp Festival, visit Inside Appalachia at wvpublic.org. Dogs have been with us for thousands of years. They're our constant companions. They protect us, keep us company, and even provide a set of eyes when we can't see. Now, Therapy dogs are going into schools to help counsel and comfort stressed students. But our furry friends are more than tail-wagging bringers of good cheer. Therapy dogs can even help improve grades and attendance. This year, West Virginia launched the Friends with Paws pilot project to introduce dogs into state public schools. Liz McCormick visited Welch Elementary in McDowell County to meet Cole, the very first dog sent out as part of that program. If you see Cole, you'll also probably see Shannon Pace close by. She's Cole's handler and accompanies him through a busy day of greeting students at the door in the morning, walking the halls when classes change, and even participating in class. He is fantastic at sitting and just listening to kids read. And when you're reading to a dog, you're not reading to you or me. They're more comfortable with that and they read better. Um, there are studies that show that students that will go and read like a read to me program with a dog, their reading levels just jumped higher and higher because they weren't worried about, he's not going to judge them, he is still going to give them hugs and kisses when they're done reading that book. Cole has become a beloved member of the Welch Elementary School family. It's a close-knit family in a tight community that faces significant challenges, not unlike communities across the state. Many West Virginia students are living in poverty. Thousands are in foster care or in family situations where substance use disorder, mental illness, and even physical abuse are realities. Children in these trauma-inducing environments are at high risk for dropping out of school, but a 2017 study from the U.S. Department of Education and the Institute of Education Sciences shows that access to a therapy dog in school increases attendance and graduation rates. Are you ready for Cole? Can I give him a pet? Yeah, give him one more pet. Cole's new job at Welch Elementary is multifaceted. He provides affection and comfort to everyone, students, teachers, staff, and even visitors. Just petting him, giving him a hug, talking to him, or rubbing his belly can alleviate a person's stress and anxiety. And when stress and anxiety are relieved, students can better focus on their schoolwork, leading to improved literacy, language development, motor skills, overall grades, and academic achievement. While it seems as if Cole has always been here, He's actually a new arrival, delivered by Governor Jim Justice and First Lady Kathy Justice in April 2022. You all are special. I think we have Beth, who's bringing someone in right now. Cole is the first dog to be assigned under the new Friends with Paws Therapy Dog Project, developed by First Lady Kathy Justice after more than a year of research, consultations, and visits to other therapy dog programs. It's such a in-depth project that we wanted to make sure that people are doing the right thing, the dogs are being cared for, the dogs are trained. Dogs now are being used in funeral homes, hospitals, uh, anything where there's emotional needs. The First Lady intends to deliver 10 therapy dogs to West Virginia schools by the end of 2022, with more to follow. 
they relate to the dogs. I mean, they just, uh, they don't feel intimidated. The dogs, as we all know, are never in a bad mood. You know, they're always happy and glad to see you. And uh, that's what we want. We just want to build a real bond and a real connection to these children. And especially after the pandemic, it's just been mental wellness has just been really tough for the whole state, for everyone. One month after his arrival, Cole's impact can already be observed in Welch Elementary classrooms. Children are more focused, and the work is more productive. Come on in. Hey, you guys. Ms. Blankenship, is it okay if Cole and I come in? Yes, ma'am. Cole, let's go. Come on. I have students who have struggled with anxiety and depression, especially since COVID. They really have struggled a lot with just feelings of anxiousness all the time. Um, and it could take 20 to 30 minutes or more to get them calmed down to a space where they can go back to, to class. With Cole, it could take five minutes, you know? So if they can come in here and they can sit on that couch and just have five to seven minutes of that deep pressure of him just laying on their lap and them petting him. So that's gonna cut down on our out of classroom time, um, it's going to also cut down on that child's anxiety. That story came from West Virginia Public Broadcasting's documentary, Communities in Schools, Friends with Pauls. Check out the full special on our website, wvpublic.org. A lot of places across Appalachia have looked at tourism to replace industries that no longer provide the economic stability they once did. Whether that's textile mills or furniture factories or railroads. In southern West Virginia, communities are looking to tourism to transition from a coal-based economy. And they've seen some success with the Hatfield-McCoy ATV trails. But there's more to the region than its off-road thrill rides. And some of these other attractions are having trouble getting the word out. Randy Yowie has this story. For $60 a head, Keith Gibson offers tourists visiting Maywan, West Virginia, an airboat ride on the Tug River, a designated West Virginia flatwater trail. I worked at the coal mines, and uh, so I've, I've had to relearn myself. You know, everything that I'm doing now is so different. Nothing like a coal mine, I can tell you. With headsets and microphones on to drown out the noise, Gibson tells his passengers tales of coal mine wars and the forbidden feud-sparking love of John C. Hatfield and Rosanna McCoy, a love that began just over that Kentucky riverbank. So she ended up uh, forsaking her family, giving up Hatfield, uh, or giving up McCoy secrets, help rescue Hatfields, and that type of thing, and uh, her family ended up disowning her because of it. Gibson says many come to his airboat tours for a respite from the choking dust of the region's popular ATV trails. But he says getting to the remote border town may call for a feud with the state legislature. We have to work extra hard to attract people to drive that extra 100 miles on curvy roads to get here. Gibson says the legislature needs to consider the challenges border counties face, with prices often lower just a bridge ride away in neighboring Kentucky. He says he was getting close to economically recovering from the pandemic when inflation hit. Well, they have to have somewhere to stay, they have to have something to eat, but they don't have to have an airboat ride, they don't have to have a t-shirt. Jamie Cantrell knows about border battles. Her mate Juan Trailhead Bar and Grill is just a half mile from her Hatfield hideout cabin and RV camp in McCarr, Kentucky. She says the growing tourism industry here needs much more help from the state. Do some stuff with the roads to help people get here. Um, finish Kinko Highway. I mean, we always need more lodging. There's people buying up homes and putting them on Airbnb left and right. We could use more food places. With ATVs whizzing through the middle of downtown Matewan, an old coal mining bank building there has been converted into the Mine Wars Museum. Co-founder and museum board member Wilma Steele says the organization remains dedicated to correcting revisionist history. When I found out the UMWA in 1920 said equal pay for blacks and whites and that they had their members swear in 
not discriminating against their brothers because of culture or speech or any of that. That blew me away. And we don't have that history, and it's not in the textbooks. Steele says Maitwan's growing tourism industry stems from freshly voted-in city leadership and a united community effort. The more that you work as a team in a town to do something, the stronger you get. A museum not too far from Maitwan, the Kimball World War I Memorial in McDowell County, sits isolated and somewhat neglected. Curator Clara Thompson says this was the first and now the only remaining memorial to African-American veterans of the Great War. Believe it or not, we had 1,500 uh, soldiers to go to World War I from McDowell County. When the soldiers came back from the war, they approached the county about constructing a memorial because the white soldiers had also asked for a memorial, and so they got it. They looked for a place in Welch, but there was none to be found. That's how we ended up here in Kimball. Replete with outstanding displays, open part-time, and struggling to maintain board members and infrastructure, the privately funded museum works to make ends meet with a community center downstairs, offering hall and kitchen rentals. Thompson says she gets national, even global visitors, yet the local population seems unaware of its own history. Why don't the schools have the kids to come here and visit this museum? You know, I mean, that's a part of history. We could use funding so that we could advertise more, put out more brochures and things like that, but hey, we don't have funding. And most grants, they ask for matching funds. Where are we going to get it from? A local representative in the legislature, Delegate Ed Evans, agrees the state needs to do more. You're right, it's not open all the time. Uh, I don't think there's a full-time employee. I think they have a, a part-time. Uh, we still have a large African-American population here in Kimball. Evans, a Democrat from McDowell County, says help with matching grant funds to enhance history-related tourism was an impetus for the legislature creating the Coalfield Communities Grant Facilitation Commission. Evan says the commission should be helping bolster declining coal communities like Kimball's infrastructure and helping their memorial become a desired destination. I think it should have been underway immediately. We haven't funded it. I was always told it could be as much as $250 million put in there. That would be money anybody that wants to write a grant could pull down from use for matching funds. West Virginia's Secretary of Economic Development Mitch Carmichael is the chair of the Coalfield Grant Commission. He says with much of his recent efforts going to bring major corporations to West Virginia, he hasn't formed a commission yet, hasn't found out about funding, doesn't have a timetable, but says he's committed to the process. And uh, we will be very active in making sure that we're getting input from the, from the local groups and uh, you know, facilitating growth in those areas. In developing southern West Virginia tourism, the haves and the have-nots seem separated right now by varying degrees of the continuing transition out of a coal-based economy. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. Coming up, we talk with the director of a new film about West Virginia's favorite monster, the Mothman. And whether he's real or not, certainly it's something that our universal unconscious can relate to. That's coming up later. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Monsters are lurking in Appalachia's creeks and rivers. The hellbender salamander can grow to more than two feet long and weigh up to five and a half pounds. It's really big, but also pretty shy. The Allegheny Front brings us this story from Kara Holsoppel about the hellbender and its connection to water pollution here. 
Since 2013, residents in rural Grant Township, Indiana County, have been trying to stop a proposal by PGE to build an injection well where fracking wastewater contaminated with chemicals would be disposed of deep underground. I spoke with Justin Grubb and Annie Roth, directors of the film Hellbent, about the connection of that struggle with the hellbender, a species threatened by water pollution. I asked Roth about the two women who are the main characters of the story. These women are a really inspiring, like tenacious mother and daughter team. One of them is elected township supervisor. When they heard about this proposed project in their town, they were all over it. They were community organizing. They were doing the research. They were on the ground, learning everything they could to make sure it wasn't a threat to their community. They're just so fiery. I always have this one saying, what you allow will continue. So if we allowed it, we'll be putting in not one injection well. After it, there will be two, there will be three. So we just did what we could do and said, hey, we'll fight as long as we can. We'll run out of money or places to fight. What were, what are their fears about the injection well? You know, one of the biggest things about Grand Township is it's a really rural area. Most of the residents, I believe, get their water from well water. So they're getting it from groundwater. And with injection wells and all the kind of fracking activities, they go through the water table. And so there's always the risk of having your drinking water contaminated. Another one of their concerns is they had like this absolutely beautiful river running through their township. And of course, under all the rocks, you've got hellbenders. Yeah, there's a real sense of wonder about this species that lives in the Little Mahoning watershed. What's special about it? For one, they're the largest salamander in the Western Hemisphere. Hellbenders can actually grow up to be like two feet long. One of the cool things about hellbenders is that they essentially just breathe through their skin. And so if you ever see a picture of a hellbender They have all these crazy folds along the sides of their bodies. And that kind of motivates the name old lasagna sides. (laughs) And essentially what that does is it increases the surface area of their skin so they can maximize the oxygen diffusion across it into their bodies. Hellbenders go by many names, snot otter, river wizard. And a lot of people go their whole lives, even in Pennsylvania, never seeing one. They're like a canary in a coal mine. If you have a good, healthy population of hellbenders, it means that your river or your watershed is doing pretty well. Yeah, and because they breathe through their skin and they've got such permeable bodies, like Annie was saying, you know, they're so sensitive to pollutants in the water. Those pollutants kind of get absorbed in through their skin, and then that causes them to perish. Why is the hellbender a symbol for this fight against gas development? The community group that formed around the injection well even called themselves the East Run Hellbenders Society. Hellbenders have been around for 150 million years. They've gone through a lot of environmental changes during that time. You know, the earth has warmed and cooled and has been through a lot. And they're a resilient species. You know, they they find a way to adapt. They find a way to survive. That's kind of also embodied in the spirit of this group is that they are willing to adapt and willing to keep fighting to protect their habitat and to continue persisting in their community. Justin Grubb and Annie Roth are directors of the short documentary Hellbent. More about where to see it at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Carol Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on environmental issues in the region. My kids have been really into monsters lately. They love Godzilla movies from the 60s and 70s. And they really dig this library book I found on cryptids. Now, there are plenty of cryptids across Appalachia, but the most famous by far is the Mothman. In November of 1966, two couples in the town of Point Pleasant told police they saw a strange creature with glowing red eyes. Other sightings soon followed. Then, a little over a year from the first sighting, the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant collapsed and the Mothman was blamed. Eventually, the Mothman evolved into a pop culture figure who's recognized around the world. The Mothman has appeared in books, comics, and video games, and now it's the subject of a new movie, Return of the Mothman, written by two-time Bram Stoker winner Michael Nast. Bill Lynch spoke with film director Herb Gardner about why people are still interested in the Mothman. The Mothman has been kind of like the the local monster. It was the one I had never heard of it until college, actually. What is the enduring affection for the the Mothman? Why why do we still love the Mothman? 
you know, I think I'd, I'd probably rest on uh, Jungian thought uh, on that one. As Carl Jung would probably call him, you know, a universal archetype. That, you know, he kind of wellsprings from whether he's real or not. Certainly it's something that our universal unconscious can relate to. And I really think it's that simple. And there are so many. I mean, aside from the Mothman, there's, uh, you know, the Flatwoods Monster, and then there's Sasquatch, and the list goes on and on and on and on. West Virginia likes its monsters. We, uh, You were t- mentioning, you know, Sasquatch and the Flatwoods Monster. There's over 20. They keep developing them. Well, why do we like monsters? You know, I think with any any culture, and, and especially us, West Virginia Appalachian culture, anytime that there is a rich history of folklore and storytelling, I think uh, they just naturally arise. You know, again, going back to Carl Jung, it's like, can we project our shadow uh, self into the real world? And, and that's a reflection of, of us, really. With the production of the film, uh, did it go okay? Any trouble? It took two years to make, and we would have released it probably this time last year if COVID hadn't you know, just brought us to a grinding halt there for a while. We had actually shot our first scenes, when, and of course we were following all these strict protocols, masks, and uh, you know, nitro gloves, and taking people's temperatures every hour. And we'd filmed a couple of scenes out in the studio, and then we get a call from one of the primary actors that says, "Hey, I just found out that you know, prior to filming, I was I was exposed to someone who has COVID, and they were getting tested, and we're like, so you know, we're just holding our breath for." 48 hours. It came back negative, but, you know, we didn't even have to discuss it. it the risk was just too high for us. Uh, we didn't want to put anybody at risk, so we just, you know, put production on a back burner and concentrated what we could, you know, which was, you know, working on, you know, the Mothman costume and securing locations down the road and things that we could do literally from our offices. Herb, how did you get into filmmaking in the first place? Uh, you know, my background... From the late 80s and early 90s, I did uh, educational films and commercials. I really didn't find it rewarding, and I was like, you know, if this is what's available, I'm just not going to do it. So I pursued a career as a detective uh, and as a mental health counselor. And then a few years ago, a very good friend of mine, actually, is my filmmaking partner, Calvin Grimm, uh, enlisted me uh, as an actor uh, on the first film, uh, River of Hope. And that was the type of filmmaking that I wanted to do. So I you know, went from being an actor in that to first assistant director and helped co-write the screenplay. And just, you know, I got hooked uh, and uh, haven't looked back since. And um, as soon as that project was over, we were looking to do another film. Uh, and we wanted to do a Mothman story and actually had three separate ideas potential scripts and then uh, Calvin discovered Michael Noss's novel Return of the Mothman um, shot it over to me and I read it we both fell in love with the story um, and we decided that's what that was the avenue we were going to take and we contacted Michael um, and he had been approached by you know some larger networks and sci-fi channel and FX but he really you know he turned him down and he, he wanted the story to be told by West Virginians uh, so after a few meetings with Michael, uh, we shook hands and started working on the project. I imagine the difference between you know, River of Hope, which was more of a historical drama, to your Mothman film, uh, that there'll be some differences like in how, costuming, special effects. What kind of challenges? Uh, well, you know, the first film, uh, you know, which was set between 1850 and 1891, of course, costuming, you know, was a huge concern. Uh, and then also, you know, we've got horses, so we had to hire horse wranglers and horse trainers to, t- well, to teach actors how to, to ride. In this film, uh, because it is contemporary, costuming wasn't an issue, but there's special effects, and we didn't go CGI route. The uh, Mothman is, an, uh, is a live actor, um, so the costuming there was the huge challenge. Instead of having to come up with uh, period-correct costumes for 50 people plus, it's getting this believable uh, costume for one actor. (laughs) But the challenge was real, and it was great. The film is called Return of the Mothman. Herb, thank you. Thank you so much. Return of the Mothman is being shown at select theaters in West Virginia. The cryptid book my kids were reading, by the way, gives the Mothman four out of six stars in what it calls its reality rating. 
And while we're talking monsters in the Mothman, Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett reported earlier this year on Hungry for Humans. It's a board game that matches West Virginia's favorite cryptids with some of its favorite places to eat. So everyone has five cards, and the first thing you need to do is just make sure you have at least one dish in your hand. There are four of us sitting around a wooden table where a colorful board has been arranged. And as long as everyone has a dish... We're playing a game called Hungry for Humans. Then you will select one and place it above your monster board. It's my first time playing, and I'm up against the two creators of the game, Jared Kaplan and Chris Kincaid. Mine was slightly hungrier than your all's. Um, I get to go up six. The odds are not in my favor. I'm going to say you look hungry, and I'm going to make you eat that extra chunky milk. (gasps) So then I have to go back? You go back one. What? (laughs) (laughs) But now... We're in Chris's home in Morgantown, West Virginia. His basement is a board gamer's paradise. A giant game cupboard lines the wall, and the table we're playing on has been designed specifically for the activity. Here's Jared. Us, as the players, we are the humans. We each have a monster friend who wants to eat humans, but if you feed it enough good food, it'll satisfy its human hunger and it won't eat anybody. Good food like a sundae from Ellen's Ice Cream in Charleston, or a burger from the farmer's daughter in Cape and Bridge. However, if you feed it too much, too fast, it becomes too powerful and just explodes. If you feed it the wrong things, because there are some nasty foods in here, then it becomes hangry and it just gets mad at you and it will eat you. Well, we got a minus two. What is that one? This is toothpaste with an orange juice chaser. Ooh. Don't know if you've ever had a glass of orange Horrible. juice after brushing your teeth. Horrible. Maybe the worst. <laughs> yep. Jared says they wanted the game to celebrate their home state and its local restaurants. I love food. So um, I just started thinking of uh, a game that involved food. Specifically food from West Virginia. Wouldn't it be cool if the biscuits and gravy were from Tudors? And then it was like, yeah. That would be cool. What if everything was from a West Virginia restaurant? And then it's sort of built from there. Cryptids are another important part of the game. Mothman, I think, is maybe people's favorite card in the game. The Grafton Monster, Sheep Squatch, Mothman, and Flatwoods Monster are all special power cards that give you an extra edge on your competitors. In real life, cryptids are only rarely spotted, and it's the same in the game. What do you do? You hear that? The what? buzzing. No, the sheep squatch coming to scare <laughs> Jared out of the meal. Chris and Jared met several years ago in their hometown of Beckley. Chris says they bonded over their love for board games. We've played games with people from very different walks of life, from very different places, um, with very different belief structures, and it's great. Nobody cares about any of it. We're just there to rob the bank or or rescue the princess. As a kid, Chris would play games with his dad and two younger brothers. It was always associated in my life with happiness and togetherness because we grew up uh, not super well off, so a board game was about as much entertainment. We weren't going off to taking trips and vacations all the time. We played Uno till we ruined decks. Now Chris is a family doctor and a professor at West Virginia University. Honestly, board games are my escape. My career's pretty taxing, especially lately. Um, as far as time-consuming and um, energy-consuming. And it's just, it is how I recharge my batteries. He's carried on the family game tradition with his own kids. Like even now, my kids have a board game shelf over there that's starting to rival mine. Jared works in marketing at the resort at Glade Springs in Daniels, and he has his own marketing business. He says he was never very good at video games, so he played board games instead. For someone, someone like me who has a ton of anxiety, I actually enjoy being around people more than you would probably think. That's what I love about board games is it brings people together. Jared says for him, board games aren't just something he pulls out at the holidays. It's really the anchor right now for me that brings my friends together is like, hey, I'm going to have a game night and people are excited about it and want to come over. At one of these game nights in Beckley several years ago, none of their other friends showed up. So it was just Chris and Jared. They didn't end up playing anything. But we just started talking about games, and I told Chris about an idea that I had for our first game. That was the start of their company, Lonely Hero Games. And after diving deeper into the world of board games, they quickly learned that a good game needs good artwork. 
if your art in your game is not good, you're going to hear about it. Morgantown artist Liz Pavlovic was the perfect fit for their second game, Hungry for Humans. She'd never illustrated a board game before, but she's known around the state for her funky renditions of West Virginia food like pepperoni rolls and cryptids like Mothman. I just really like celebrating the, um, I don't know, weird stuff in the state and the stuff that maybe people don't know about, especially if you're not from here. Today is Liz's first time playing the game, like me, but she seemed to be getting the hang of it. Okay, so I'm going to play the potluck card. Oh. <laughs> and add this. Okay. We have. So now you're trying to make someone explode. No. That's <laughs> a seven. Liz's monster friend is none other than Flurbin Gusselpot, a peculiar creature, loosely inspired by a bat. It's her personal favorite. So he has like a really weird nose and uh, otherwise, I guess, sort of like a reptile body with a horse tail um, and some fangs and like a really long tongue and really long fingers. And he's purple. He's purple with spots, orange spots. <laughs> when Hungry for Humans launched on Kickstarter last fall, they received an unexpected amount of support for the game, specifically from West Virginians. Sometimes I reflect on that and feel extremely lucky to be from West Virginia and have our community because if you're creating a game in somewhere like New York, it's like, well, everywhere you look, people are doing that. In West Virginia, though, people take a lot of pride, it seems, in people who are doing things that are different and unique, and they want to support each other and lift each other up. And then, you know, you kind of want to live up to that. Well, we better make it the best darn game we can and really mean it. Chris says he enjoys playing Hungry for Humans, but he rarely wins. And indeed, Chris's monster, Porgus Beanhammer, is the first one to explode. Don't blow me up. Blow him up, because I... I look hungry. That leaves me, Jared, and Liz. At this point, I'm rooting for all of you to join me in the grave. <laughs> it's a seven, so it's going to be four each, which is going to blow... Whoa. Can I play yuck? We're all about to lose. Yes. Okay, yes. So okay. first do that. Okay, I'm going to play yuck on the three. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, that yeah, means so you win. Once the millions, yes, you win. Mm. Good use of the yuck <laughs> card. Yeah, you almost played the yuck. Yeah. We were they may have let me win, but <laughs> I'd like to think otherwise. Chris and Jared's game, Hungry for Humans, will be available this summer. And even though it isn't even on the shelves yet, they already have ideas for more new games. I don't know how many he has. I have at least 15 <laughs> right now. If you take off these slats, there's a a skeleton of a game under this table right now that I've been working on. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Claire Hazlett. You know I love that organic cooking. I always ask for more. And they call me Mr. Natural. On down to the hill. The West Virginia Film Office of Economic Development has reestablished its state office and brought back a revamped film tax credit. Randy Yowie talked with State Business Development Manager Megan Smith and workforce developer Dave Lavender about television, movies, and jobs coming to West Virginia. How does the tax credit work, Megan? So when a production company comes to West Virginia and, and films um, a production, um, they would be eligible, depending on certain parameters in, in state code, to get back up to 31% of direct expenditures in West Virginia. Are there already projects in the West Virginia Film Office pipeline? There is a lot of interest. Um, we've seen projects that will be on Lifetime, projects that will be on Fox Nation. It's something really special and something that is has a lot of momentum right now, and, and that is not going to stop anytime soon. The film tax credit has no cap. It's transferable and sellable. First, what does that really mean? And then how do those two points give West Virginia a competitive advantage over other states that are already rolling with their film offices? Yeah, having no cap on the credits is a big deal. Um, it's very attractive to production companies. It also makes us more competitive because some of our surrounding states like Maryland and Pennsylvania, they do have caps on their credit. So what happens is, you know, production companies, those states may run out of credits and then they look immediately to West Virginia um, because we have the ability to not only accommodate their production, um, we can also 
double as Maryland if we need to, or double as Pennsylvania. The geography and the landscape can be similar, but we also have a lot of really great and unique locations. Describe an eligible project. So to be eligible, um, a project would need to have at least $50,000 in um, direct expenditures in West Virginia. It can be a feature-length film. It can be a TV series, a TV pilot program. As long as they're distributing in at least one other state than West Virginia, um, we're really looking for impactful, significant projects that are going to be seen beyond the mountain state. 5,000 locations in West Virginia. Uh, What would be an example, Dave, of some of those locations? Well, you know, Randy, uh, somebody said, you know, either be first best or original. And definitely West Virginia is original. And that's what Hollywood's looking for, some of these original locations. Places like the, you know, Trans-Allegheny Asylum, very unique. Uh, Moundsville Prison. You know, these are kind of amazing places to film. Yeah, just really places in each corner of the state. But anything can be a location. Uh, as you know, West, as Megan was alluding to, West Virginia can serve as a backdrop for Maryland or Pennsylvania. We're really a geographical chameleon. Talk about the expected community economic benefits that are expected from West Virginia film productions. So most shoots are, you know, probably more than a few days and sometimes they're, you know, weeks and can be into months. And so all of that, all of that money is just circulating in your community. People need places to stay. They need catering. They need costuming. They may need horses. They may need classic cars. Um, so this, the film industry is one of those really interesting economic uh, octopi, I guess. <laughs> its tentacles goes way out into a community and touches a lot of different parts that you wouldn't necessarily think would be. And um, so that's the exciting immediate economic benefit. And of course, putting people to work. So last year, according to the Motion Pictures Association, we had $120 million in wages just with eight TV series here in West Virginia, stuff like uh, Barnwood Builders, right? And that... Uh, was equivalent to uh, 1,980 jobs directly and then 3,880 jobs uh, indirect, like the service providers that I was talking about. So we're hoping to really bring in a lot more folks to West Virginia because we think that West Virginia has got a story to tell uh, in its mountains, in its people, and we want to share that with the world. Megan, explain one more time how interested parties can find out more about this. Um, we have a really great tool on our newly launched webpage that allows productions and companies to look at the various locations around West Virginia. Folks in the industry here can even upload their own locations um, as well as search through a crew and services directory. And that's all at westvirginia.gov slash WV. Finally this week, we talk with Scott Worley, a keeper of lore and local history in Southern West Virginia. Worley lives in Beckley, where he collects stories and gives history and ghost tours. The story isn't exactly about ghosts, but the people who commune with them. We're talking about spiritualism a metaphysical idea that people can communicate with the dead and even seek advice. It became a mainstream trend in the mid-1800s. Seances attracted celebrities like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Mary Todd Lincoln, and repelled others like Harry Houdini. Worley tells us about what spiritualism looked like in West Virginia during that time. Our history here with spiritualism goes back to the very beginning of the spiritualist movement. You know, most people think that that occurred mainly centered in upper New York State. But very shortly after the the movement took hold is a a group of the spiritualists came to Western Virginia and they decided to build their own community here. And we're talking 1850. They built the community of Mountain Cove in Fayette County. The community was a planned city. It had a a wall around it, actually. It had... um, laid out uh, with neat little rows of houses. They had their own little, you know, meeting houses. They had a form of government, uh, like a town council. They started their own newspaper. They had one of the first newspapers in Southern West Virginia. That I said, they practiced spiritualism. They thought that there were ways to contact folks who were dead. And they lasted for a few years. Then, of course, the Civil War comes along. That's when spiritualism just really took off in every major city. There were studios where you could go and either have a spirit photograph made with see if your loved one was there. They were really preying on the widows and family of 
Civil War soldiers that had not returned home. In a lot of cases, you didn't know if your loved one was dead, captured, or just decided not to come home. What had happened is the folks at Mountain Cove had disseminated out, had gone out into communities, but maybe living up a hollow somewhere. So that's where you would get somebody talking about, you know, the lady up the hollow can see things. So they would have folks coming from miles around to see their loved ones or see their future. The period that really strikes me happened in the early 1900s because there were several very well-known mediums, spiritualists, practicing in West Virginia. They would take ads out in newspapers. And there was one particular Mrs. Elizabeth Blake, who was from the Huntington area. She traveled by rail. She would go to different cities, and she would take ads out in the paper. Mrs. Blake is going to be at such and such house, maybe in Hilltop or Scarborough, Oak Hill, Beckley, Lewisburg. And she would gather folks around, taking donations, to help them to uh, see or communicate with their loved ones. Now, this is a time, particularly in the southern coal fields, where a lot of widows from coal mine accidents. There was a near riot in Hilltop because so many people came out to see Mrs. Blake. And she claimed, I, I can only read six people a day. So these people have to disperse. Well, they wouldn't disperse. They were just milling around. They actually called the constable in to disperse the crowd. But with Mrs. Blake, one of my favorite tales with her is in 1909, right outside of Beckley, the Hood family was going off to church. Mrs. Hood had already passed along, but George Hood and his sons and daughters had gone off to church on a Sunday. The family came home. The oldest son decided to go off with his gal friend and go to a picnic. And when he came home in the evening as he approached, approaches the home out in Mount Tabor. He sees the flames shooting up. And he gets there, and the house is almost totally destroyed. By the time the local fire brigade can get there, the house is pretty much gone. So they start sifting through looking for the remains of the folks that were there, the Hood family. And they found them. But what they found were not folks that had died in a fire. They had been murdered. The two girls were missing their heads. Well, Mrs. Blake comes forward, and she tells authorities in Huntington, I know who committed this murder, because it was written up in newspapers all over the region. And so Mrs. Blake details facts of the crime that nobody had been shared with, positions where the bodies were, and her theory of who committed the murder. So they started investigating that. A lot of the things that she had said about a feud with the folks of her business and such, they found to be true, but they did not able to gather enough evidence to actually prosecute anybody based on her reading of the crime. But she claimed the shade or the ghost of George Hood came to her and gave her all these details to help solve the crime. That was lorekeeper Scott Worley. The Hood family murders remain unsolved to this day. Now, Worley says he has about a dozen ghost stories he tells regularly for his tours. But he often hears a lot more from people who come out. Do you have a good Appalachian ghost story? Better yet, if it's true, tell us about it. Email InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Maybe we'll read it on air. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Lucero, Tyler Childers, The Company Stores, Larry Gross, and Dale McCurry. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.